Earlier this week, I read a story, more of a legend, really, about the great Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Apparently, when he lived in Vienna with his father, um, who was Leopold, who was a gifted musician and talented in his own right, Wolfgang used to play a bit of a trick. So he would be out all night with his pals, having a raucous evening, and he would come home in the late at night, wee hours of the morning, whichever, and he would sit down at the piano, and he would start to play a scale, softly at first, but because it's Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, eventually got pretentious and showy, and it built and built and built and built, and he spent uh, minutes, maybe even an hour, just building and building and building and building and building, and when it finally came to end the scale, he went to bed. Now, meanwhile, Leopold had been upstairs sleeping peacefully. All of a sudden, he's awoken by this noise of his talented, gifted, genius son playing a scale that's building and becoming more beautiful and reaching a crescendo and then just sort of stops without ever finishing. So he'd lay there in bed. Then that note that should have been played is just lingering in the background. He'd try to go to sleep and he couldn't. He would thrash he would roll, he would toss side to side, he would curse his son, until eventually he ripped the sheets off, stumbled downstairs sleepfully, banged the last note of the chord, and then went back to sleep. But something about that unresolved note kept him up at night. And I get this on sort of a visceral level. I can't leave things unresolved, particularly stories. If I'm watching something at night, be it a movie or a TV show, I can't go to bed until it's over. There might be four or five minutes left, and Carmen says, I'm going to bed, and I think to myself, I might even vocalize, you're a monster. This isn't over yet. There's four minutes left. We have to see it through. I will fall asleep on the couch waiting for whatever movie, whatever TV show to end. I have suffered through very terrible science fiction novels because 60 pages in and the, it hasn't started yet, they've been describing the same face. I can't quit. I have to keep going till its end. I will toss and I will turn until things are resolved and concluded. Now because... I am a glutton for self-punishment. I have spent a lot of time in the past few years in Old Testament narrative and have found myself feeling this over and over and over again. Stories without resolution. Opening in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heaven and the earth and there's darkness. And into that darkness he speaks and light comes. And over the course of the week, it continues to create, and everything's harmonious, and everything's beautiful, and everything fits perfectly together. And into that garden, he places human beings, not as slaves, but as partners, as cultivators of his creation, to participate in all that he's doing. Of course, we know how the story goes. Humanity rejects God. God finds them in the garden, hiding from death, and banishes them. Puts clothes on them because they are shamed in their nakedness. And he sends them from the garden. Places two angels with flaming swords so that they can't find their way back. East and east and east they go. And as we read the story, things only get worse. Very shortly after this, we get the first murder. Then there's ecological disasters and discord and natural disasters and everything is spiraling out of control. 
And into this, God speaks. He promises to rescue his creation. And so we start looking for it as we move through the narrative. Maybe it's going to be Abraham. But Abraham is actually a disaster when you read his story and messes up over and over and over again. Maybe it's one of his descendants. But his descendants repeat the exact same mistakes, sometimes with the exact same people. So much for the patriarchs. But then maybe it's Moses. He gets the law. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting on. Moses doesn't even make it to the promised land. Certainly it's the kings. David seems to start out strong, but even David falls. And his children are even worse. The story keeps on repeating itself. The story doesn't have an end. We thrash and we turn and we toss late at night. We can't sleep because somehow there's no resolution. There's no ending. The world doesn't exist as God created and we can, as God intended, and we can feel it. Something else needs to be played. There's still a note missing. And if you dwell on it, it might drive you mad. But then we come to our text today, and if you're paying attention, it should feel familiar. At the very beginning of John 20, John makes sure we know that it's the first day of the week, and it's dark. Sounds familiar. We've been on the first day of the week before. We've been in dark places when God first created, when he initially spoke. As a matter of fact, we're, we're back in a garden. We've been in, in gardens before. That's where the first human beings were placed. What's happening? It feels uncomfortably familiar, but incredibly different. There's two angels, but they're not standing with flaming swords, guarding it, keeping people out. They're inviting people in. Humanity, when it was shamed, stood there in its nakedness, and God himself clothed him. Jesus, after being crucified naked on a cross, was put in linen clothes to cover the shameful brokenness of his body. These clothes are now discarded and laid in the grave. We've seen so much of this before. And in that garden stands a woman. She's distraught. And she says, where have they taken my Lord? And she talks to a gardener? Well, if the first humans were those who cultivated God's creation, wouldn't that by definition make them gardeners? Something is drawing our attention to all these themes that have been playing out, that have been playing us, that have been driving us crazy. And then this gardener says to the woman, go, and it's not in banishment, it's to carry good news. And then we wind up in a room behind locked doors, where a group of people are hiding for fear of death. We've been here before too. We've seen just a few nights before this, a group of people standing in a garden when Jesus is arrested and they've fleed. They've rejected God. And now they're hiding behind locked doors, hoping no one will find them because that will mean death. And into the room, walks God, and he breathes on them. We've seen this before, too, in Genesis. 
When God gives life to humanity, he literally breathes into their lungs life. Here it is. The final note we have been waiting on, the resolution to the story. Thrashing at night saying, God, it can't be like this. And we find all of it, the resolution in Jesus. The culmination of the story, the triumph and the resolution of all. And he makes a promise. One day, I'm coming back. And one day, you're going to get everything that I have now. Christ's promised return. And we get to sleep soundly. We don't have to thrash anymore because we have hope. But what does it mean in the meantime? What do we do while we continue to wait even though we sleep soundly? I think we learned several things from this text. First, we understand that we are a people pursued. We understand that we are a people pursued, and the whole gospel story tells us this. We learn this in the famous hymn from Philippians 2. Christ, who, did, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he makes himself a servant, emptying himself. An interesting phrase, if something is a spirit without a body, how does it empty itself? By becoming a body, by becoming like us. God the Son taking human flesh to himself and living as the Son of God so that we might become children of God. Or as one of my favorite theologians of all time put it, he became human so that we might become divine. And the scriptures around this are endless. God demonstrates his love for us in this, Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our sins, made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. 1 John 4, this is how God's love was revealed among us. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. And love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I cannot stress the importance of this idea enough that we are a people pursued for a couple reasons. First, of what it reveals about God to us. I think even though we believe that God is actively involved in the world, we still operate from sort of a soft deism. God doesn't really get involved. He kind of sits back. Every now and then he makes his presence known. But God pursues us. God shows us who he is. God doesn't break into the system. He is the system. He is everywhere. And he becomes particular in the person of Jesus. Meaning, if you want to know what God's like, you don't have to guess. You look at Jesus. God doesn't leave us to make our own assumptions, to come up with our own conceptions, to try to figure out who God is to us. He shows us exactly who he is. We can look at the human being Jesus and say, there is God. This is how he has loved humanity. And also, understanding that we're people pursued, it helps us get our holiness the right way around. I can remember when I was 26 and horribly out of shape, obese, and maybe even morbidly, morbidly so, and I spent a year 
torturing myself. Unbearable fitness regime. My, noise, my knees still make terrible noises. Um, I still get aches and pains from everything I put my body through. I, I ate far too little. It was terrible. And then I would even make horribly morally disparaging comments to myself when I didn't live up to my potential. If I couldn't finish the last mile or I couldn't resist the cookie. <laughs> but at some point, the switch flipped. Actually, I like myself. Actually, I love my body. Actually, I want to eat because I want to nourish it. I want to exercise because I feel better. It became this exercise in self-love, not self-torture. Like I said, this understanding of a people pursuit helps us get our holiness the right way around. Because the danger is that we fall into this temptation to say, if I'm good enough, God will love me. We beat ourselves with metaphorical whips and we scream and we make morally disparaging comments about ourselves and put them in the mouths of God. And we have forgotten Romans 5, which I have just read, which is God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In love, he takes the first step and cleanses us. And our holiness is not a condition for God's love, but a response to it can't earn his love by my actions, but I can return his love by my actions. And this distinction is vital. It is the difference between a God who is dispassionate and continues to berate us when we fall and a father who gets down on the floor with his children and helps them sort out the mess. This is what it means to be a people pursued. Second, it means that we are a people commissioned. Again, a universal reversal, uh, a reversal of Genesis 3. God stands in the midst of his followers with whom he has spent so much time, years and years, and he sends them out. Now again, in Genesis 3, it's God saying, you failed, flee my presence. But it's totally different here. He sends them out. He commissions them with a purpose. It's, it's rich. It's Trinitarian. The Father sends the Son who procures salvation for his people, and the Son sends his followers. But instead of sending them out of his presence, he sends them with his presence. The very Spirit of God, God the Spirit, breathed into humanity, resurrected, recreated. The best learning experiences I've ever had in my life have started with the words, come with me. I learn my best when I know I'm not alone, when someone shows me how to do a thing and helps me do it. When I was learning music, I was shown where my fingers should go on the bass and on the guitar, and sometimes even the instructor moving my fingers around so that I got it exactly right. When I wrestled in high school, it was the coach getting down on the mat with us and wrestling us, showing us the moves, and this, then having us drill them over and over and over again. In my ministry training, seminary and theology class were great, but I learned my best lessons when the pastors I was working with said, there's a family who's had a bereavement. Come with me. Let me show you how to reach and to love people. I was invited along. And I'm captivated by these words, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, because these disciples would know exactly what that looked like. Because three years before God, uh, Jesus says, I'm sending you, he said, follow me. Come with me. Come and see how it's done. And when we go into the book of Acts, we see just that. 
Similar miracles, similar sermons, all of them acting incredibly like Jesus because they had seen it firsthand. Again, I cannot overstate the importance of this because we talk a lot about mission and this is good and we should be on mission. We want to be the people who spread the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and that he's risen. But we don't just go with a message. We go with the method. This means it's not good enough to be right. We have to do it right. When we go, when we examine our mission's efforts, we ask ourselves, we ask ourselves, does this look like Jesus? Are we interacting with the lost the way Jesus interacted with the lost? Show me a place in the Gospels where Jesus stands on a corner and screams terrible things at people who have never heard the name of Jesus. You won't find it. I can show you where he'll run through a crowd of self-righteous religious people with a whip, but I can't find a place where he's unloving and kind to people who are genuinely seeking him. Also, we have confidence. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. How did the Father send him? He sent him vulnerable. He sent him in the midst of sickness and poverty. He sent him to be slandered, to be betrayed, to be treated unjustly. But at the end of this journey was resurrection. The author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, the resurrection, Christ endured the cross. We endure hardship. We endure slander. We endure so much that seems unjust. That's okay. Jesus went before us, suffered worse than us, and found resurrection at the end of the road. And he calls us to follow suit, to do the hard things, to suffer the terrible things, in hope that one day we will have a resurrection like his. So we're a people pursued, we're a people commissioned, but we're also a people gathered. There's a tricky little line here. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. What in the world do we make of this line? Now, in the early church, part of the evidence given that Jesus was actually and fully divine was that he could forgive sins, because who can forgive sins but God alone? So is Jesus elevating us to the level of Christ? Or is this something particular about the apostles? And then does it extend to, his, to the, apostle, the apostles' descendants? What exactly is happening here? I think in order to understand what's happening, we have to check some of our enlightenment individualism and, dare I say, evangelical sensibilities at the door. There's something particular and unique that happens when the body of Christ gathers together. Christ himself tells us that when two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of him. And let's not forget that that passage is used for church discipline. The idea that we're calling people out on their sin. 
There's something unique, something distinct that happens when the body of Christ is together. There's a reason we take communion together. There's a reason we celebrate baptism together. We believe that as we gather, Christ is here with us. Not in some vague, nebulous, omnipresent way like he is everywhere. There is something particularly pointed and something particularly gracious when we gather together. It's called the body of Christ. And when the body of Christ gathers and says, your sins are forgiven, we can trust that our sins are forgiven. This is why the corporate confession of sin is so important, and it's not just a throwaway piece of liturgy that we sometimes remember to tack on. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the most holy, unholy person that, that walks through the door. But I know there are weeks when I stumble out of church on Sunday, and I feel like I spend all week stumbling. And then I stumble back into church on Sunday, and I can't find the grace of God anywhere. I can't feel him in my life. I know I've screwed up, and I can't bring myself to ask for forgiveness. But I can come, and the church can pray and can say over me, Clay, your sins are forgiven. I need you to carry me like those friends carried that man up onto the roof and put him in front of Jesus so that when Jesus saw their faith, he forgave that man's sins. I need you to confess my sins for me because sometimes I can't. And I promise that I will confess your sins for you when you feel like you can't. We're in this together. We're a group of individuals, but we are not isolationists. And I think we get this picture with Thomas. This beautiful, intimate scene. I mean, sometimes Thomas gets a lot of flack. He carries the name Doubting Thomas, maybe fairly or unfairly. I remember Todd Shively a couple weeks ago quipping to me, he's not Doubting Thomas, he's Honest Thomas. But what I was more intrigued by as I spent time this week and last week thinking and pondering and praying over this text was about absent Thomas. Where was he on Easter? The disciples of the Lord were all together in one place when Jesus first appeared. Where was Thomas? He's one of the 12. Maybe it was innocent. Passover meal, you usually have five, six, seven cups of wine as it's going, and maybe he has family in Jerusalem, and he just went and slept it off somewhere. And when he came to, he couldn't find the disciples. Maybe he was even more terrified than the disciples were, trying to get even further away from the name of Jesus by hiding by himself. But he wasn't there. And he said he wouldn't believe unless Christ showed up, and he got to put his hands in the hands of Jesus and the side of Jesus. And where does Jesus meet him? It's not in the private prayer room. It's not on the road to Emmaus. It's not when he's wandering and fasting and praying, lost in his own existential crisis. It's when the disciples gather together again. Christ deals with Thomas in the gathering of the body. If we look just a chapter over where we looked last week in John 21, when Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? 
Where does it happen? Over breakfast with the rest of the apostles, sitting right there, hearing the whole conversation. We are the body of Christ, and that's good news. You can't walk this alone. I can't walk this alone. That's good news. I don't have to. God has given me you. God has given you me. Lucky for both of us. But the point is, we don't toss and turn at night anymore. We don't have to live in the unresolved tension. The final note has been played. We have been pursued. We have been commissioned. And thankfully, we have been gathered. And so we can wait. And we can wait in peace. And we can wait in victory. And we can sleep soundly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection. For the reality that you have pursued us for the reality that we know exactly what you're like for the reality that you have given us a purpose for the reality that you have gathered us together for the reality that we don't have to stumble day to day week to week alone that we can stand with one another declaring your sins are forgiven my sins are forgiven we are the body of Christ so as you sent Jesus send us. We ask this in his name. Amen.